From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. I like cheese. I like cheese. Don't say I like cheese, Christy. I like cheese. More, more, more. <laughs> I like cheese. I like cheese. I like cheese. The most ancient of peoples, long since vanished, still speak to us through their tools of flint and the household shards which they left behind. The sounds, too, are a part of all life. And while the sounds of history are gone with the winds that bore them, we can reconstruct enough of them from our own experience to tell the story of our forebears through sound. This is ReSound. Every week, the Third Coast Audio Festival searches high and low for the most interesting audio stories we can find. On the air, off the web, overseas, underfoot, over hill, over dale, you get the idea. And then we bring it to you neatly wrapped in a one-hour package. We curate, you enjoy. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today we bring you four stories of wonder and woe. I understand it's a fish story and all this stuff. It is a big fish. First, just another fish story tale of a tiny town in Maine and a whale of a surprise that washed ashore. Then, The Impersivator, a story about the power of the media and the power of the dark side. Next, 13 Ways. What do you get from this stanza? What do you see? What do you think is going on here? The incredible results when writer Sam Swope walked into a public school and started teaching rambunctious and imaginative fifth graders poetry. And finally, Voices in Your Head, a daughter, a mother, a psychic, and a disease. Stay with us. Eleven years ago, in a rural town in the poorest county of Maine, a 60-ton dead whale washed up on the Atlantic shore. In Just Another Fish Story, Producer Molly Menchel traveled to the town of Lubick, where the accents are as salty as the ocean air. So give your ear a minute to adjust. And there she asked residents to recall what happened to the town, the people, and the whale. The story about the whale. The story about the whale, see. I understand it's a fish story and all this stuff. It is a big fish. But what happened years ago here in Lubeck, Maine? There was a whale got tangled up in the fisherman's lines way off, somewhere off a quarter head. You whale to see then, see. And it drifted into shore. It just couldn't swim. You know, the tide carried it in, and it landed on the beach over here in Lubeck. Not too far from here, see. I saw it. I was down there. Big. I couldn't tell you how long or... The whale was roughly 55 to 56, 56 and a half feet long. A 70-foot animal. That's almost the size of an 18-wheel truck. To me, it was huge. It was huge. It was huge. It was laying down, it would be as high as this ceiling. It was the largest animal I ever saw. No wonder in the Holy Bible it says, Jonah went into the belly of the whale. Oh, there's plenty of room there. That mouth is a big one. It was laying there right on top of the beach. And it was laying on its side. I remember it was blackish, grayish color. Grayish color. He wasn't gray anymore. He wasn't grayish, blackish. It was it mostly was black, right. and, black white. and white. He was white, more whitish, grayish. And there was a lot of wounds on it, old scars. What it looked like was a vicious animal to me. I mean, it was a monster. But I wasn't frightened because it was dead. His mouth happened to be open. His mouth happened to be open. It was a dead fish, but his mouth happened to be open. 
might have been uh, middle of August or so. Yeah, August, can't September. Yeah, I can't. Sure. It, yeah. Evidently, it washed up in the night, and someone spotted it after daylight laying there on the beach. That was uh, early in the morning. The word had started to spread that this whale had washed ashore and people started coming in. I went down by myself, but there were plenty of people around. Oh, the first day when it washed up, I went down. Yeah, we took the kids down to see it. The little kids were running up to it and touching it. Climbing up on top of the whale, standing on it and get the pictures taken. <laughs> Sold hot dogs or something. Made a little money. <laughs> I think people in a small town handle death in a different way. They have to deal with it a lot more often. Everybody knows everybody, so when someone dies, the whole town grieves. I actually went down there. It was coming on to sunset, and I sat on the beach and smoked a cigarette and bawled my eyes out. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd done. And I, I never went back down. And we lived probably a 1,000 feet from the beach. The mystery in the whole thing is how we got there. Nobody knows if it died off in the bay and floated ashore, or whether it grounded itself out and died on the beach, or whether it just got confused. Nobody knows. It washed up on the beach. He got snarled up, could have been. I guess that's what happened to him, he drowned. get clear. You know, this is where it wanted to be. They called the Coast Guard to see if they could tow it back offshore and let it go some other town, <laughs> but they wouldn't do it. Because it had already been a couple other places, and that's what they'd done. They towed it out, and Lubeck finally wound up with it. There was no boat big enough. And depending upon the way the wind was blowing, when the current was running, some things were almost impossible to get rid of. And this thing laid on the beach for days while the town was trying to determine whether they, how they were going to get rid of it. And it sat there. It was just possible, but because government didn't know what to do. They were arguing. One branch of government arguing. It was too big to move. You couldn't move it. You couldn't do anything. We're a very poor town. We're the poorest county in the state of Maine, and that we would be the ones having to put the. In a small town, Lubeck, it was big doings. All the people in the town, in the town office, and the whole nine yards were all disturbed because. Like any dead body, it began to smell, you know, it stink the town. A lot of people were saying, we got to move out of here on account of the odor from this whale, see? You could smell it. Low tide smells around here anyways, but this reeked of death. Rotten meat set in the sun for a month. You just take the cover off the can, stick your head in there, and that's just what it smelled like. It was an oily... Greasy smell. It was right in your nose. Oh, it smelled like rotten Rotten meat. fish and oil. They smelled, couldn't stand yeah. it. You know, when the wind was blowing that direction right on the you town. They could smell it from Everybody. miles away. As far away as Eastport, Maine, they could smell it. Oh, I touched it. Probably felt the same as what it did almost when it was alive. Cold. They're cold-blooded. And it did have a funny feeling. The texture of the animal was... A big, smooth piece of rubber. I touched it with one finger, and I had to use less oil to it's get the stench really hard to get off your hands. I put hand cleaner on my hands. I put straight gasoline. You have to wind up bleaching it off your hands, and that's what I wound up doing. And finally they decided something had to be done about it. It would come to the point where no matter what it cost, it had to go. They knew <laughs> yeah, something had to be done. It had to be done. And they did something. One thing led to another, so they called Ramsell, a man named Ramsell. I was notified by the town of Lubeck. We contacted me to come down and dig a hole with that excavator. 
It was kind of a hazy, overcast day, and the sun didn't shine. I think there was like a crowd of 15 or 20 people actually showed up. There were a lot of people, maybe 100, 100 or so people. Word spread fast. Everybody in town was there. But I just wondered, where are they all going, you know? So I went too. So we dug a hole as close as we could. And before I got the hole dug, he accidentally slid on his own and went into the hole. Sort of graceful. I mean, it was so big, it just took its time, just sort of... The side caved in a little bit. He rolled in, he slipped in and rolled up, belly up. When they finally rolled it into the hole, you know, everybody sort of quieted down. And, and they, they were kind of respectful. They were kind of sad to see it go. Oh, I don't know how to explain it. Something that you never think of, dying. You always hear stories that a, a whale is a passed-on fisherman's soul. Made me think how small I was, yeah. There's a lot of people that think... Oh, I'm so big. I'm so great. No matter how powerful they are, something will happen in life that will cause people to say, how small am I anyway? We're both mammals who have reached the pinnacle of, of our place, and uh, they, they just seem to be close to us. I feel close to whales. And we buried it six feet over the top of it. Dug up gravel and stuff and covered it all over. And I've dug grave, you know, for humans here in Cutler also. So it just seemed different to bury something with no box. <laughs> it's putting raw earth right back onto his body. You picture him as being immortal, like a free soul, free will out there. You, you just don't see him dying. It, it was sad. It was very sad. And it took about two and a half hours, three hours to dig the hole and then fill it back in. And by noontime, we was all finished. I think I got like $300 buried with things. And then the town of Favor, actually. Maybe the whale, too. How do we know? It was just a day's work for me to, to help bury a whale. I mean, it was an oddity that to bury a whale. just something weird just that work. it happened and something unforetold. And... If you never did see it, you couldn't understand it, you know what I mean? And as far as I know, it's still there. He's still laying there. That's about all I can tell you about the whale. I haven't been down there since. Maybe I'll go down and take a stroll over. <laughs> That's the way things went. And uh, this is from Mars Island and Ruleback, Maine. Just another fish story. Just Another Fish Story by producer Molly Menchel from the Salt Institute for Documentary Studies in Portland, Maine. She's currently working on her first novel. You're listening to ReSound on Chicago Public Radio. Eleven years ago, in a rural town in the poorest county of Maine, a 60-ton dead whale washed up on the Atlantic shore. That's 120,000 pounds. Right? 120,000. No, 100. No. 60 tons is 2,000 times 60. It's a 60 ton dead whale? Yeah, that's 120,000 pounds, right? Is that, you just think that's, can't be right? I mean, I guess we copied it, so. Should we double check? 
Every year on April Fool's Day, there's always a story on National Public Radio that is completely fabricated, start to finish. They never tell you it's made up, but it is. And the more real players they can bring in on the joke, governors, senators, pundits, the more real it seems, and the more letters of outrage they get from listeners who didn't realize it was April 1st. Such is the power of the media. Most of us have a tendency to believe what we hear, especially if it sounds and acts like a traditional news story. The news format may carry with it a stamp of credibility and authority, but in fact, it's been used to blur the lines of fact and fiction, depending on who's using it. Just look at Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds debacle. Our next piece, by producers Sean Cole and Benjamin Walker, was conceived as a bit of fiction, to be written in the form of a public radio news feature. Did they set out to make their audiences think this was real? Maybe. Were listeners fooled? Absolutely. Here is The Impersivator by producer Sean Cole with Benjamin Walker. If you're 30 or older, chances are this dirge is sending chills up and down your spine. It's the music ascribed to Darth Vader, evil ruler of the Death Star. And in an age where Hollywood bad guys are either price-fixing corporate bigwigs or psycho killers with superhuman IQs, Darth Vader is still the only enemy who can lay claim to the lofty stature of evil. But what is evil? Well, if you ask Bo Jackson, a Darth Vader impersonator in Salem, Massachusetts, evil is as evil does. So when Bo lifts you up by your neck and holds you in midair, it's not a mean prank, it's an evil act. And when he goes grocery shopping for his ailing mother in his black armored suit, his cape flowing behind him as he walks down the cereal aisle, because he's the one doing it, he says, that's an evil act too. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Bo's 38. When the first Star Wars movie came out, he was nine. Like the other kids in school, the movie obsessed him. But he didn't have all the action figures and trading cards and paraphernalia like the other kids. Bo only had one action figure. Darth Vader. Actually, that's not entirely accurate. Bo had, and still has, hundreds of Darth Vader toys and dolls of every size, made out of every material you can think of. Glass, rubber, porcelain. He even has a giant plush Darth Vader pillow, a rare collectible that today fetches as much as $300 on the internet. As a child, Bo was skinny and awkward. The other kids picked on him, called him bomosexual and little Bo creep. It made him mad. But he was too shy to express his anger, so he'd just burst into tears. Darth Vader was everything Bo wanted to be. Commanding. Vengeful. Even violent. No, 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 that wasn't it at all. This is Bo. I should mention here that two years ago, he had a voice synthesizer surgically implanted into his trachea so that he could sound more like Darth Vader. No, I didn't care about those little punks. Then what was it? I mean, why Darth Vader? Because he's evil. But what does that mean? It means he's not anybody's bitch. He's totally autonomous. Plus, he doesn't get caught up in stupid sentiment. You know what I mean? He's not like everyone else, limping around, talking about their emotions. Darth Vader's focused. He keeps it simple. Bo and I are 
Peter's sitting in his mom's basement, where he's been living since he was six. His room is a virtual Vaderville. Vader sheets, Vader curtains, custom-built shelves house his Vader figure collection. Mounted on the walls are various Darth Vader masks and costumes that Bo has built over the years. His latest model, the one he's wearing during our chat, is legendary in Star Wars circles. An exact replica of the costume used in the movies. As you can see, I've made about 12. Uh, I kept them all, except the first one. That one was a piece of shit. Bo made that first Vader costume when he was 16. Regardless of how he feels about it now, it was good enough to impress the people at Lucasfilms. He sent them photos, and they replied with a certificate that authorized him to dress as the Dark Lord in public. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. I was so stunned I I couldn't leave my room for like two years. When Bo finally emerged from the basement, he brought the certificate and a new and improved Vader suit over to the Chuck E. Cheese restaurant in Revere, Mass, and they gave him a job. Five nights a week, he lorded over small children and their chaperones, lifting the kids up by their necks, using the force to spill drinks on unruly customers. It was heaven, or whatever the evil version of heaven is. Bo held this job for 12 years. He thought it was the job he would do for the rest of his life. But then, in 1999, reality surpassed even his wildest dreams. Or so he thought. They came out with episode one. You know, the prequel? Well, I get this letter from Lucasfilm saying they've been admiring my work and they want to hire me to be the Darth Vader who does all the big Star Wars promotions in New England. I was thrilled. But there was a catch. Remember, Return of the Jedi ends with Darth Vader's redemption. He dies de-helmeted, passively smiling at his son Luke. And Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace, features Vader as a little kid, racing around Tatooine, shouting things like yippee at the top of his lungs. So, included with the invitation from Lucasfilms, Bo received a directive issued to all official impersivators. It stated that from now on, all sanctioned portrayals of the Dark Lord were to include the character's, quote, inner good side. Good side? It's like asking a Hitler impersonator to go up on stage and say, actually, you know what? I'm really sorry I gassed all those Jews. Nobody wants that. But what about the end of Return of the Jedi? I mean, doesn't he forsake the dark side for the good side or whatever? That's revisionist bullshit. And everyone knows that in 1983, the Christian Coalition put the screws to Lucas to change the ending of Return of the Jedi. The original scripts on the internet. Darth Vader never had a f***ing good side. He's evil to the core. Evil, evil, evil. Bo took the job but he wouldn't play by the rules. In fact, he was filled with a new resolve to be the evilest Vader he could be, to be the one to tell the truth about Vader to a brainwashed world. This plan lasted exactly two days. After he was caught lifting up a teenage heckler by the neck outside a KFC in Pittston, Maine, Bo was fired. Worse yet, Lucasfilms took his refusal to portray Vader's good side as an act of industrial sabotage and informed Bo that he was no longer legally permitted to play Vader for pay at public events. That's when Bo changed his name to Darth Vader. I figured that could get me around the directive somehow. Really? Yeah. I thought that if my name was Darth Vader, then how could they stop me from being Darth Vader? But they own Darth Vader. I mean, they they have a patent on the character. He's copyrighted. Okay, I understand what you're saying, but look, my driver's license says my name is Darth Vader. 
and so does my uh, social security card, and my library card, and my blood donor card, and no one can tell me that I am not Darth Vader. The loss of his job, the nullification of his certificate, it was too much for Bo to handle. Plus, there was the little matter of his icon being, in his words, pussy-whipped into a PC shadow of his former evilness. On top of it all, Bo was broke, having just spent all his money on the tracheotomy. So, he took a job, as an overnight attendant in a hotel parking garage. He'd show up to work in the requisite uniform, his backpack bulging suspiciously. And in the still morning hours, when no one was around, he'd slip into his Vader suit and stare out at the rows of cars from behind his black metal mask. Then one night, Bo found himself face down in handcuffs on the dirty garage floor. The police had gotten a tip. A parking lot attendant dressed as Darth Vader was spotted in his little booth, masturbating with one hand and choking himself with the other. Bo denies the allegations. He says he was just trying to get his lightsaber out of its sheath. It's a conspiracy. I was set up. By who? George Lucas. He doesn't want me to exist because he knows, he knows that I'm the real Darth Vader. The truth scares him. Bo's arrest didn't receive much mainstream press, but it spread like wildfire through the Star Wars community. The respect and admiration he used to command for his elaborate Vader suits and extensive Vader collections, none of that mattered anymore. Now he was simply known as the Master Vader. Meantime, George Lucas secured a court order barring Bo from ever presenting himself as Darth Vader in public again, an order Bo refuses to abide by. Four or five times a week, he shops for his mom at the supermarket dressed as Darth Vader. His morning coffee runs and late-night ice cream excursions are all conducted in costume. And every Saturday, without fail, a dark-cloaked figure can be seen perusing the aisles of Chris's Cards and Comics in downtown Salem. Do you ever wonder, Darth, what your life would be like if, say, it was uh, Luke Skywalker or Yoda that made the big impression on you? Your questions have grown tiresome! Um, you're just kind of raising your arm in the air and, and gripping your fingers like you're choking someone. Had enough, Knave! Sitting in his basement, watching Bo pretend to throttle me with his gloved hand, I realized how little we know about evil. We're conditioned to believe that human nature is essentially good, that evil is a choice. People certainly choose to do bad things, to carry out so-called evil deeds. But how many people do you know who've consciously chosen to go over to the dark side? Perhaps evil is something that nobody chooses, but rather something that seeks out the weak, the scared, the alone. Something that chooses its own constituency. Silence! Hey, Darth? Are, are you okay? I have you now. The Impersivator, produced by Sean Cole with Benjamin Walker for Your Radio Nightlight on WZBC in Boston. Sean Cole is a senior reporter on the documentary program Inside Out from WBUR in Boston, where he never, ever uses a voice synthesizer and masquerades as the interviewee. You're listening to ReSound. Attention, Skyway passengers. 
Please remain seated and keep your hands and arms inside the Skyway cabin. Attention Skyway passengers, please be ready to follow the instructions of our trained personnel. Efforts have already begun to assure your safe exit from the Skyway. They will be in touch with you soon. Please help us by remaining calm. Again, we are preparing your safe exit from the Skyway. Trained personnel will be assisting you soon. Please help us by remaining calm. Remain seated and wait for assistance. You're listening to ReSound. And now, some music. The song is called The Days Before Fiction, from Mice Parade, from their album Benvinda Fontade. Mm-hmm. 
right to grow Some time ago we left it where I'm sure you know song The Days Before Fiction from Mice Parade. You're listening to ReSound. As you may or may not know, each year the Third Coast International Audio Festival hosts the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation Competition and awards audio work in a variety of categories. And like most awards, the judges whittle down the entrance until they feel they've selected the best of the best. But that doesn't mean that there aren't other selections that are equally worthy of notice, which is why the directors of the Third Coast Festival created the Director's Choice Award, so that they could pick their favorite story. Last year, the award went to 13 Ways, produced by Pike Malinowski. The piece is an audio portrait of a class of fifth graders in a public school in Queens, as they work with visiting writer Sam Swope to interpret a famous poem. This is a poem by a guy named Wallace Stevens. He wrote it about 85 years ago. Um, He was a a businessman. He worked for an insurance company. He lived in Connecticut, and he he also wrote poems. And he became quite famous, actually. And this poem, this poem is called 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Um, Shall we, shall we begin, yeah? Number one, among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird. It's winter, and it's Christmas, with all the snow. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and so the only moving thing is that why is nothing else moving? In the poem, it feels like you're in a cemetery. Mm-hmm. Because, um... Since no one's there, it feels like only skeletons are there. Mm-hmm. Um, suppose we just try and write our own little poem. You don't have to rhyme. Our own little poem. But what I'd like you to do is we're going to pretend that we're writing a poem called 13 Ways of Looking at a Tree. 
And I want you to do this stanza, something similar, not exactly the same, but something similar. Among 20 snowy mountains, the only moving thing was the eye of the blackbird, but use a tree instead. You got it? Give it a try. Among the forest, there was only one tree moving because a squirrel had bumped into it. Rodney. It was one sunny day. The trees were moving up and down, floating in the air. You could feel the fresh wind coming towards the tree, and it was shaking all around. It was number two. two. I was of three minds, like a tree in which there are three blackbirds. See if you can compare trees with something else, the way he does compare thoughts with blackbirds. Just try to get the feeling of this stanza into your tree poem, if you can do that. I was sitting still on two chairs like a tree. I was thinking of the future. I had four thoughts on my head, like a tree has four branches. I was like a boy with puffy hair who was so surprised that he stayed completely still. She forgot to add the trees? That's all right. I think a tree is kind of like an author because an author, um, most authors will never like tell what they're really writing about until they finish in a tree. You can never know what it's thinking about because they never tell you. World in the autumn winds. It was a small part of the pantomime. So, what do you what what do you get from this stanza? What do you see? What do you think is going on here? Mm, maybe um, uh, a bunch of blackbirds having fun in the autumn winds, and maybe playing with the leaves, like surfing. Uh huh. How could they be surfing? Like to fly on top of the leaves and like put their legs on the leaf. The leaves are the surfboards. Yeah, <laughs> but but the leaves are too like it's too light. It it, it, it will just fall down. It right? doesn't have to be a real story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Number four. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a blackbird are one. Like a man, when they said like a man and a woman on one, maybe like they were married, so maybe they got a blackbird as a pet, and then the blackbird was one with them. That means that a man and a woman are the same because the only thing that they have in, they have oh my God. they oh have my this God. there's not stop. <laughs> Right, no, 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 let me talk. That they don't have the same, it's two parts. Can we move on? <laughs> yeah, this is getting out of hand. 
Okay, alright, let's move on. Mm. I think we got that one. We can do the rest for after lunch. Number five. I do not know which to prefer. The beauty or inflections or the beauty of in an... <laughs> In you and those. In you and those. The blackbird whistling or just after. In and on those. In you and those. are actually sort of hidden meanings, little hidden meanings in language that other people might not get who don't understand the words like you were saying. Can we go outside? Go outside. Okay, let's go outside. He's lying. No, we'll go outside, but just for a minute. Yeah. I used to do it before. I couldn't, I couldn't do it a lot of times. I can't do it. Up here. Let's listen to the subway and decide whether we like the sound of the subway or just after. Can you be Blackbird Whistle first? I don't have, I don't have. You just did it. Mm. Something else. <laughs> so let's just try it and think about this idea for a second. There's the, there's a sound. This is not a, really a song, but there's a sound you hear. And then the, and then the like sound stops, and then you have a feeling that's that's caused by the memory of the sound. It's, it's like, different, isn't it? You're listening to a sound and you you're enjoying it, and then it stops, then and your feeling sad. changes. A, you get sad. Maybe you wonder after after it's finished. Maybe you wonder what like what I was singing. Yeah, you wonder. That's sort of that goes back to the beauty of inflections or the beauty of innuendos, the beauty of the sound of the song, or the beauty of its meaning. And sometimes wondering about the meaning is just as nice as knowing it. Yeah. Something else. <laughs> <laughs> you, you did a whistle. Would you like to be a bird? Yeah. Why? Because I like to fly away and and like not wait in line and I like get my lunch whenever I want to. <laughs> okay, let's go back in. Huh? Okay. So, Pedro, would you like to read that one and start with the word, the number six, say six, and then read the poem? Number six. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow. Barbaric. Barbaric glass. Icicles filled the long window with barbaric glass. The shadow of the blackbird crossed it to and fro. The moon traced in the shadow and in dive. In decipher, the mood traced in the shadow and in decipherable cause. And indecipherable. Just go along with it. Indecipherable cause. Indecipherable cause. In Indecipherable cause. Indecipherable. What do you think indecipherable means? Indecipherable. Yes. Maybe without a meat, without a. Number seven. Oh, thin man of 
Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Oh, thin man of Haddam. Why do you imagine golden birds? Why do you imagine golden birds? Why do you imagine golden birds? Do you not see how the blackbird walks around the feet of the woman about you? Number eight. I know noble accents and lucid, inescapable rhythms, but I know too that the blackbird is involved in what I know. So how would you do? How would you do that stanza, but with a tree? I have been sitting under the tree. The tree had withered down at me. I was writing. For some reason. I knew the tree was watching me for what I have done. In, in escape, in escape, in inescapable, inescapable. Number nine. When the blackbird flew out of sight, it marked the edge of one of many circles. All of these, um, all of the things we've read, it it talks about the imagination. It doesn't say what's real. It's talking about the imagination. Everybody done? Yeah, everybody first. <laughs> The tree's leaves blew beyond sight. It passed up and down. It grew into the marking. Everybody together. Even the bods of euphony. 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 Number ten. At the sight of blackbirds flying in a green light, even the bods of euphony would cry out sharply. What does euphony and bod mean to you? Why were they flying a green light? Um, flying in a green light actually means that they're going because if it was on a red light, they would stop or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's a funny thought, but um, why would birds stop a red light? Yeah, because they're not in cars; they won't crash That's something. What I'm trying to say is that imagine if he's trying to um compare, like um. The, maybe the air with the traffic light. This one is this one's just a puzzlement. I don't know what this one is. All right, let's okay. let's just do number eleven, I guess. Number eleven. He rode over Connecticut in a glass coach. Once a fear pierced him, and that he must took the shadow of his. You equipage, equipage for blackbirds. Okay. He confused the shadow of his coach with blackbird. the blackbirds. Can I say something? 
maybe throughout the throughout the whole poem it says that the bird has been that the bird and the the pole was together right so it might be the blackbird or the man is following each other somebody is riding and he looks at a blackbird and he has a strange feeling about it something strange is happening <laughs> okay, let's do number 12. Can I read number 12? Uh, you just read one. Joanna, why not read Number 12. The river is moving. The blackbird must be flying. I think, have you ever heard of like, when there's a flock of birds, when one of them leaves, the other leaves too? Say this is a bird and this is another bird. When that bird flies away, the other one flies away too. I think it's because they don't like loneliness. Like, sometimes when, like say for people, when they're together, right? One of them leaves, the other one might be kind of like lonely and might be scared or something. They could leave too. Like when the river is moving, the blackbird is moving too. Because it's it won't be the only one um, saying so. I have a question for you. You said that they don't like loneliness. Then why would the other one leave by itself? <laughs> well, I said they might be lonely. Tree number 12. I hear the leaves rustling. I hear the tree running. Ah, okay. Trees can run. <laughs> it's he imaginary. Imagines it. He imagines it. That's a lot about what this poem is. It's a lot about what's real and what's imagined. That's very, that's very Stevens-like of you. <laughs> come on. Addison, come on. He'll give you a lollipop. Number 13. It was evening all afternoon. It was snowing, and it was going to snow. The blackbird sat in the cedar limbs. Why do you think he ends the poem? Why do you think this is number 13? Why does he end it this way? Because it describes like he was traveling the whole day. Like, he started in the morning, and then um, he's been seeing blackbirds through the whole day. And he ends it by it snowing in the night and seeing the blackbird sitting under trees. Mm-hmm. Um, the sun is setting, um, it's starts to get kind of dark, mm -hmm. um, there's little light, um, when there's like a storm, um, the streets get really, really dark. It's kind of like, for people, uh, it's kind of like beginning and the end. Like, uh, you're born and then it suddenly, it suddenly ends. 
that's kind of like the story because the story is beginning with like your life and then it's ending with hmm, it's ending 13 ways produced by pike malinovsky for pri's the next big thing out of wnyc in new york i'm gwen maxi and you're listening to resound from chicago public radio Email your comments to resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Doesn't have to be poetry, though we'll take it if you write it. Pamela Z is a fascinating sound artist. She's a classically trained singer and composer whose work explores sound, music, and the voice in a multitude of ways. She's toured all over the world to critical acclaim, but most importantly, of course, she was on ReSound last year. And we liked her so much, we want to play more of her work today. This selection is called Voices in Your Head, and it's part of a larger work called Voci. Voci examines many different aspects of the voice, recorded voices on answering machines, the voices of musical instruments, and voices in your head. Somebody's listening to your conversation. You can't trust them. You can't trust anybody. They don't really like you. They're can't just, just trying anybody. to get what Nothing's you have. Nothing's going to work the way you They're want to. They're just trying to get what you have. You don't understand anything. You don't know you anything. You know Nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to. They don't believe in you. When my sisters and I were young, my mother often told us about a psychic she visited regularly. She would sit with this psychic, whose name was Florence, the way you or I might sit with a counselor, or a therapist, or a voice teacher, for example. And the psychic would tell her what people around her were saying, or planning to do, or things that might be about to happen, and sometimes offer advice on what to do about it. I don't know what she paid for this service, but I always imagined her hand leaving crisp bills on a piano for Florence, the way I did for my music teacher. You can't get out. You have, to stay, you have to stay awake all night. As my sisters and I began to grow up, and my mother began to grow old, she started telling us about a problem she was having. She was hearing voices. The voices were mean. They would say mean things to her or give her strange instructions in a vicious tone of voice. Sometimes they tried to trick her by speaking in a sweet voice, but she could always recognize the viciousness underneath. She had had a falling out with the psychic, she told us, and she believed that the voices were the voice of the psychic, somehow being broadcast inside of her head. She believed that Florence was harassing her. Psychic harassment. Run down the hall. Go stand outside. Go on. Run down the hall. Go out on the porch. Go outside. She hired other psychics to help her with this problem. 
the way you or I might hire a doctor, a specialist of some kind. But the problem just kept getting worse. The voices became so insistent that they were keeping her awake at night and confusing her by day. My sisters remained in my hometown even after I moved away. And they regularly reported to me the severe, relentless episodes of psychic attack. And when I would go home to visit for the holidays, I would hear the harassment stories firsthand. As my mother explained how Florence had said this or that, she would begin to hunch herself over, grimace, and drop her voice into a bizarre, frightening register. When she imitated Florence for me, she seemed possessed. I heard these stories off and on for many years, and I always tried to comfort my mother, saying, I'm sorry Florence is bothering you so much. You have to stay up. Get out. Go, go, go get out. Go get out. Run, run, run up and down the hall. Run up and down the hall. You have to stay awake all night. She expressed concern that Florence might start bothering other members of the family. And she warned me that Florence was very dangerous and that I should be careful not to listen to her if she should ever start bothering me. A few years ago, I was having dinner with a friend of mine here in San Francisco. My friend confided that she suffers from a form of schizophrenia. She said she was working on a theater piece about it. Really? I asked. Yes, she told me, and she said she was on a medication that prevented her from hearing voices, and that if she ever went off her medicine, the voices would quickly return. I asked her to describe the voices, and she imitated them for me. She paused and began hunching herself over and grimacing in a very particular way. Then, to my shock, she dropped her voice into a bizarre, frightening register, and out of her mouth came the voice of Florence. Look out the window. You're getting small. You're just getting smaller. Voices in Your Head by composer and audio artist Pamela Z. She's based in San Francisco. I just love that name, Pamela Z. It's just so cool. <laughs>
ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else. <laughs>